Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Roger Sorkin to the show. Roger Sorkin is an award-winning producer, writer, editor, and director of mission-driven films designed to strengthen civilizational security. Prior to founding the American Resilience Project, Roger consulted with and created documentary and dramatic films for a wide range of nonprofit, academic, and government institutions, including the U.S. Global Leadership Campaign, USAID, NATO, American Cancer Society, and more. Roger's most recent film, titled Farm Free or Die, advocates for transformative agricultural policies that improve farming livelihoods and address the climate crisis, is scheduled to be released on February the 8th, 2022. Roger, how are you doing today? Doing well, Raj. Thanks for having me. Roger, thank you for joining. Roger, I'd like to dig right in to one line that I found in your bio that I think is very, very relevant for today's day and age. How do you bypass a partisan fault line? So the way we think about our work is uh, as convening tools at heart. Uh, we're trying to bring people into the same conversation, uh, have it as a, a conversation starter. And we need to recognize first what the obstacles are to having a productive conversation. Um, there is a lot of information out there. There's a lot of toxic information. The, the speed that information travels through our modern media ecosystem is overwhelming. I think all of us, no matter what our political views are, can say uh, they feel a bit overwhelmed by how much information is out there. Um, and we cannot fall into the traps of using the the same polarizing frames that are, are used to keep this media ecosystem profitable because it thrives on division and conflict. Um, I mean, you might say good politics also thrives on honest conflict. You know, there needs to be conflict. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we've, and, and I recognized for some people, this might be considered naive, but we think there are uniting factors or, or forces across society that don't have to take on any kind of partisan flavor um, to immediately tribalize uh, the different viewpoints. And we start with basic human need. Um, you bypass the, the, by, the partisan fault lines by first recognizing everybody wants to have uh, security, food, uh, safe, clean place to live, uh, safe children, um, clean water, and that's what a good story can do. It can help connect those dots. And that's, that's what we try to do with our film, just connect the dots for people, give them a, a really big perspective, a 40,000 and beyond foot view of the problems and uh, illuminate the path to a solution, which uh, in our view goes through public policy. And that's at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is educate people so they can participate in the civic arena to help shape that policy, um, citizens all over. Um, and focus 
policymakers towards uh, goals that, frankly, are not politically uh, damaging to them, right? We're trying to respect the fact that there's a lot of lacking in courage, um, a great lack of courage um, in politics. And we have to accept that as a reality. And so we, we want to give the weaker uh, folks with no conviction a path to the same solution that, that we know we need in order to deal with the climate crisis. So you mentioned your work, you mentioned movies. Can you give an overview of the American Resilience Project and your role at the organization? So the American Resilience Project is a nonprofit that makes films and media tools to influence public policy, behavior, uh, change our culture, uh, and improve civic engagement. And we do that through the creation of strategic narratives that we weave into our films and into our other media resources. And I'm the Can executive you... director. I have a background in journalism and filmmaking. And uh, when I started the organization, it, it was in response to some frustration that I came across so much environmental filmmaking that, that was so well made, uh, stories really well told. But often there was a, a disconnect between the quality of the work itself and the impact that it was intended to have. And I wanted to be sure that we never lost sight of the goals we were trying to accomplish in the world. Uh, so we always start with this question of what is the policy pathway to achieving the solution uh, to the problems that we're, we're encountering? Um, and once those questions are clear, after we consult with policy experts and academics and people who have lived experiences, any way for us to gather information uh, about a certain situation and understand what policy tools might might come to help uh, alleviate the problem, um, then we set out to make the film. Then we determine what is the actual story that we need to tell. Who are the trusted messengers in that story? And that's a big part of it too, because um, you know some people will only take information from people that they like. I think that's it's pretty common. We can go through a lot of examples of that in our uh, you know just turn on the TV and and there we go. There's there's examples right there for you. Um, and so information is fragmented quite a bit these days, and, and we're trying to make sure that whatever message we put out is going to have some interest and relevance across every single platform, which is why we think about the basic human needs involved in, in all this and try to make the case that, that coming together around certain policy objectives is what is going to allow us to address the, those basic human needs. Can you give a few examples of the movies you've already made? We've made a first film that we did under the American Resilience Project banner is called The Burden. And that is about six years old now, which unfortunately it's still relevant because we haven't solved the problem of renewable energy and, and defense energy, and energy security. Um, but that film at the time was designed to really, and I think in that, that case, the message was very targeted towards the, the, the right side of the political spectrum. Um, we were trying to show that Climate change is a question of national security, and that clean energy was a good solution for improving our national security. And we didn't really get too much into the question of climate change, but we talked about how dependence on oil is um, resulting in too many lives lost and too much money from our treasury spent. And that's really the frame that we kept it in. We didn't need to get into discussions about sea level rise and too much carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, there is some of that, but it's all told within the context of national security in the sense that having destabilizing climate creates destabilized societies. 
um, destabilized governments, and that often results in some sort of uh, violent conflict. And so that's uh, that was a message that resonated quite a bit. I mean, we had a lot of interest from the Department of Defense and the defense sector. Um, you know, we still do screenings to this day with uh, defense uh, industry uh, companies trying to educate their employees on the intersection of uh, of climate change and, and national security. And, you know, we're under no illusions that um, we shouldn't be reducing the amount of money we spend as a country on the defense sector, which is obscene. But if we're still going to be spending that amount of money, we need to be diverting it towards good things like uh, renewable energy systems for our bases here in the United States uh, that will put people to work uh, in and around the communities where those bases are, for example, doing energy retrofits on buildings. So the Department of Defense, of course, got a lot of money and where they decide to spend their money, uh, industry, uh, the private sector often follows because they want those contracts. So so that was our strategy with that film. Um, you know, and uh, we convened very qualitative audiences, folks in Capitol, on Capitol Hill and other governmental levels uh, across different state governments. Um, and that's when American Resilience Project was born. We, we realized that to have a, a nonprofit organization that was mission-driven produce this work was, a, was the right way to go about it, um, rather than be a film production company. Um, so the, the few films after that, the next one was called Tidewater. That looks at the intersection of national security and sea level rise. In a funny way, that film doesn't even mention the term climate change because uh, we didn't need to get into debating how the sea started to rise. Uh, we we're just interviewing people around the naval base in Norfolk, Virginia, talking about how they can't get to work on sunny days because the sea level is rising and they work at the, the naval base. Uh, they're navigator on a ship and they can't go out to deploy because the road is flooded in front of their house. So we had that conversation on those terms. I mean, what does this climate problem mean for our national security? Uh, next film after that is the first in our current revolution series, which is designed to help guide energy transitions. And um, film after that is the second one in the current revolution series on the Navajo transition specifically. The Navajo nation uh, recently closed its last coal plant. And um, we try to really unpack all of the nuance and complications involved with that transition. It's not that simple. Uh, you know, a lot of people on the Navajo nation relied upon jobs there. A lot of roads were built with coal money. Um, so you, you might at first glance think that the entire nation was against the, the coal on the reservation, but a lot of people did benefit, government did benefit over time. Of course, the legacy is not a good one. A lot of sickness and uh, environmental contamination as a result. Uh, and I think, you know, general consensus that it was a net negative for the nation. But it's a microcosm for what communities everywhere are experiencing. I mean, it's relevant to communities in Appalachia where, or in the petrochemical industry in the Gulf Coast states. You know, people rely upon these jobs. If, if you're going to just tell them that their product is bad without giving them a pathway to a, a new job, then you're not going to get them to come on board. So coming back to our focus on, you know, how do we weave these basic human needs as touch points in all of our stories? You know, if you're not talking about people's jobs and the pride they feel in their jobs and speaking to their, their dignity as people, then you're not going to get any buy-in when it comes to creating policy designed to address the climate crisis. So what kind of feedback have you received in all three of these movies? 
We generally get a very good feedback. I mean, uh, you know, there's the occasional social media troll that that uh, that lingers on, on our site for a little while, spewing the talking points that, uh, you know, climate change isn't real. Um, other than that, you know, we have people all across the political spectrum, uh, you know, sometimes conservatives who are saying, uh, you know, you finally gave me a way into the conversation. You know, this is a, this is a good way to be thinking about this stuff. I get it now. Um, and folks, uh, you know, liberals who, who say, uh, who agree that we've been talking down to or beyond uh, folks whose buy-in we need. And, you know, we know we're not going to change everybody's mind. We don't expect that we're going to turn conservatives into liberals. We're just trying to show that there is a convergence point on some of these issues. Um, and they just haven't been framed in the way that, uh, that can be most effective. And that's, I think, what we're doing. We would get that kind of feedback, that we're, we're framing things in an effective way, um, not compromising values. I mean, I think uh, there are a lot of important progressive values that should be in the farm bill. Um, but, uh, you know, if someone else comes to it from a conservative perspective and maybe wants to argue over how much uh, a ta- certain tax should be on something, I mean, that's a fair fight to have. But uh, the bigger picture is, and this is for, for the new film, uh, Farm Free or Die, which is uh, focused on the 2023 farm bill. Um, you know, we need the buy-in of farmers in red states. I mean, if we don't, uh, I mean, I shouldn't say if we don't, I should say if we do, their senators, their representatives are going to be more likely to uh, support uh, aspects of the farm bill that uh, are going to help their constituents, farmers who are on the front lines of climate change. You know, they know they're they're experiencing severe economic uh, hardship as a result of environmental changes. Uh, so there's no no need to debate climate change with them. They just need help. And that's what the Farm Bill can be designed to do. So Farm Free or Die, I watched Current Revolution, the second uh, part of it, your interviews with the Navajo Nation. In the newest movie, is it a similar method that you used where you interviewed farmers that are perhaps being affected by climate change? Yes, we interviewed farmers in Tennessee, Nebraska, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Maryland. And in a, on a quick side note, we were supposed to go out and do it, but because of COVID, we couldn't. So we actually rented a number of cameras and shipped them to the farmers. Many, a couple of the farmers who are in the film took up the the uh, the flag there and, and ran with it and did the filming for us. We were on Zoom calls with them, showing them how to use the gear and remote directing. So they were very collaborative in the process. And uh, I think an, uh, an unexpected surprise was that it's even more authentic because they were that much more involved in the filmmaking process. So, you know, whereas maybe we didn't get the, a beauty shot uh, because of some amateur cinematography in a few cases, um, we've got people being really candid. That that candor we might not have gotten to that degree uh, if we had shown up with our, our standard film crew. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting thing. And uh, I think the other filmmakers who are listening to this would, would appreciate that. Um, so we uh that's 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 really what we did i mean we uh asked them about what's going on in their lives what is causing them to uh struggle what are their challenges um what do they want and you know it was surprising to us a lot of farmers they they were the conservative farmers who would say things to me like you know i'm not a fan of the government coming in and telling us what to do i've never been it goes against every fiber of my being but in this case we know that the government is needed 
in order to put up some guideposts on this new carbon exchange that I've, I just signed up with so that I can have an incentive to do regenerative agriculture. And uh, it's hard for them to get that price on carbon. It's, it's, it's still, as one of them described, the Wild West out there uh, in terms of a, a carbon market for them to, to, uh, to measure their carbon, get a price on it, sell it uh, reliably and predictably. And so they, they want the government <laughs> to come in and do that. Um, so that's one of those things that made it into the film because the farmers were saying it was important to them. And it's one of the things that uh, we're going to be really driving home when we get out there with this film, which comes out uh, in February. And that's, I think, an area where we're, we're going to have more political buy-in than maybe on some other polarizing issues. I mean, you know, there's a lot of head-scratching moments in politics these days, but but I, I think I would be surprised if there were any uh, politicians who said they don't want to help their own farmers in their own states uh, get through uh, an economic hardship. I mean, it's an easy talking point for them. and we're, we're teeing it up for them. So how is regenerative agriculture tied directly to the upcoming Farm Bill? Well, our hope is that it will be tied. I mean, it's the bill is still in the process of, of being written. Um, what we're trying to do is make sure that these priorities are uh, are the ones that that this the focus of this bill should have. Um, it, you know, so I, I'm not a I'm not a policy expert. I, I couldn't tell you how uh, line for line what the policy says, but we are really trying to make sure that um, farmers are are the ones that are doing the talking, that they're the ones whose voices are being heard. Um, and if they're the ones that are saying, we need a new cash crop, we need a new commodity, uh, carbon is an obvious choice, uh, give us the incentive to do that. Um, and in the process, we know we're going to help create a cleaner environment, we're going to have a better food product, and we're going to help deal with climate change. Uh, that's really the strategy in a nutshell. Um, so it's really up to the legislators to determine how much uh, regenerative agriculture, which is the best tool for sequestering carbon, uh, if that's written into the farm bill and if that's a major focus of the farm bill. Now, you mentioned the interviews from the farmers being or having the opportunity to have them be more candid because they were had the cameras and they could essentially you know walk around and say what they needed to say or wanted to say. Did any of the farmers reflect that they felt like they had been perhaps misled or misinformed regarding climate change? No, no, not at all. And, and, you know, we didn't really get into the conversation. I mean, I did have a a conversation with one of the farmers. Um, It didn't make it into the final film. Uh, I mean, that's an editorial choice of mine. I mean, I I didn't think it would be helpful to put it in. Uh, But he does say on camera, um, I don't know you know, if climate change is happening because uh, it's man-made or because the climate's always been changing. Uh, you know, he was citing what I consider to be debunked talking points, but I didn't challenge him on it because I know for me, at least my medium allows for me to just quietly not include something in the finished product. Um, so I wouldn't include that line because I don't think it's true. Uh, but his next line was something like, but we're getting beat down by weather. We're getting slammed by unpredictable climate patterns that we've never seen before. I mean, he could recognize that as truth. So there's no point in 
debating the cause of it, which goes back to our previous film, Tidewater. Uh, again, I think why that film was was so successful in reaching the audiences we were trying to reach is we didn't get pulled into unnecessary debates. We didn't allow ourselves to have to play defense on misinformation talking points. Uh, so, you know, I don't blame this farmer for saying those words. You know, there's a lot of bad information out there, uh, but I'm not going to include that in the film. So, but when he does say, you know, I need help, I, I, I'm getting flooded out every three years with hundred year storms every three years. Um, <laughs> you know, he said that, and that's where we we converge. I mean, that is we come back to this concept of, of the basic human need. We all need the farm fields to stop flooding and and in it and uh preventing farmers from having successful harvests. That affects the food security for everybody. So that's the frame that we're we're trying to maintain in, in this film and really in all of our work. I mean, anytime there's some silly debate about climate change, we just always pull the lens back to uh, of the main idea and, and the big picture. So, so yeah, we talked about climate change with some of the farmers. Uh, we wanted to. Um, and some were more forthcoming than others. I mean, I, I wouldn't dare say all of them said something questionable. It's really only one of them that, that said this, uh, what I consider to be questionable. Um, all the others had no problem at all saying, uh, you know, I would be proud to to have my work to, to, to be incentivized, first and foremost, because they got to have some kind of incentive to do this work. I mean, making a living in farming is so hard. Um, I, I want to be incentivized to be a climate change hero. You know, no one said it in those words, but I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing that. Um, they see that they they are in a great position to, you know, be one of civilization's heroes. You know, I, I like to think about uh, the origins of civilization and how farming is is often cited as as one of the marks of the birth of civilization. Uh, it, it's nice to think that farmers. Uh, could continue uh, to help civilization stay strong. Um, because look, if uh, climate change, the first thing climate change, where we're all going to feel it is unless our living rooms are underwater, uh, our food supply is going to be hit. Um, that's that's something that's going to wake us all up pretty quickly. So we got to make sure our farmers are strong and resilient and uh, that foreign countries are not coming in and buying up farmland because our farmers can't afford to stay on them. Um, so th there's a lot of issues in rural America um, and uh, issues that, you know, farmers are, they're on the front lines and we got to pay attention to them and we got to help them. Now, you and I are both part of this, what I'm going to call media complex. Recently, I heard a term, mediocracy. Are you familiar with that term? Yeah. What are your thoughts about the role that media is currently playing? I know it's a very macro question, but media is currently playing in society overall. Hmm. Oh boy, what a, what a question that just keeps on taking, taking on a different answer. I mean, I, I think of media almost as water or air at this point. You can't get away from it. And um, it's, uh, it's too simplistic to blame the media for anything. I think you have to blame the media ecosystem that we're all a part of. You know, we choose where we want to get our information from now. Um, you didn't used to really have a choice. You either had a TV in your home or you didn't, or you had a radio or you didn't. And there was you know, like three main stations and they kind of mostly reported straight news. Um, probably, uh, you know, a lot of things were covered up, right? Like you'd never heard about, you know, John F. Kennedy's affairs on any of the big networks in the 19, uh, 1960, early 60s. But, um, you know, nowadays, 
this concept of, of people, quote unquote, doing their own research is just a, a symptom of a, a dysfunctional media ecosystem. Um, I don't know how we solve it. I mean, I, I rack my brain about this all the time. I think the only way to solve it might be for us to all, uh, uh, you know, unplug together for an extended amount of time, which is completely unrealistic. But uh, it's it's hard to break through. You know, it's hard to have a message that's going to stick. I think it's a reason why uh, a politician like Trump could get away with so much uh, in such a short period of time because it's just so easy to move on to the next outlandish thing um, instead of letting a message sit and fester for a little while. Um, and that's the same with the good news. I mean, it just gets covered over. It's just constantly, uh, you know, to, to keep the good information relevant requires an awful lot of maintenance and repeating and and strategy. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, and then you look at statistics like... Uh, you know, what, what does it mean for what is cable news's role in this? Probably less and less every day. You know, I think uh, to blame the media and, and, and who's even reading newspapers, right? Like, I don't have any of that data handy, but I'm sure we've all seen trends where we know that the traditional news sources are losing viewers and readers and listeners. Um, and, uh, you know, the new and up and, up and coming social media platforms uh, just continue to grow. It's almost like whack-a-mole trying to keep up with them all. I agree. It is. Now, you've been on this journey for about seven years. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? I, I think maybe that I would despair if I didn't continue to do the work that I'm doing. Uh, I maybe am uh, acknowledging the fact that you have to give yourself hope, even if it's false at the end of the day. You can't let yourself think it's false hope. You have to think that your actions are going to have some impact on the world. And, you know, the jury will, would be out on, on any of us until the, you know, we're long gone. And then people can look back and see if our legacy on this planet was, uh, had any sort of good effect or not. Um, but I've learned that I have to actually believe it, um, that it's, it's all about the work. Uh, I, you know, I found a skill set that, that I, I gravitated to and I thought I, I could do pretty well. And then just decided that I would stick with it because um, I, I wouldn't know what else to do. I mean, I'm, I'm long beyond the point where, you know, I, I would go and, and look for a, a day job somewhere in an office. Um, I, you know, there was the time where I thought that this isn't going to work out because it, it was sort of a hybrid model. I mean, we're a nonprofit that makes films. We, we don't really make any money off the films. We just get enough money to make them, um, which is great. I mean, that's it's, it's been a model that finally has started to work for us. But for a while, it, it looked like it was going to be uh, financially not not tenable. Um, so you know, I don't, I don't want to sound trite and say, oh, I learned that I, I know how to persevere during hardship. Um, but I guess I guess that's what I'm saying on a certain level. Um, is uh, And I, I guess this isn't so much about me, but I also think that the times that we're living in, people are hungry for a bright spot and they're hungry for at least a pathway to uh, a new solution or a, a more thoughtful solution. I think that's, we're offering something like that in the work that we're doing and the way we're telling the stories and the way we're engaging with audiences. You know, we, we don't just do films. We also do communications toolkits and we, we write simulated town hall exercises and mock debates for schools built on some of the issues that are in our films and developing curriculum materials. Um, 
So there's a lot of ways to do communication skill building and narrative dissemination beyond just creating a film. And so we're, we're thinking about that media ecosystem in every single way we can reach people through different types of information. Um, so it's been, uh, you know, I think the, uh, it's, a, it's a challenge, like I said, it's a challenge to break through the noise, but um, we are reaching the audiences we think we need to reach. I mean, it's, it's hard to measure quali- quantitatively, but we do get a lot of feedback where people are saying that our film helped them break through, whether it was their city council meeting, uh, you know, they just passed a measure that after people started talking about the issues that they learned in the film. I mean, we're just a tool to uh, to keep uh, people focused on solutions to climate and resilience issues. Let's talk tactically for a minute. How do you give yourself hope? Um, you know, I have uh, I'm optimistic and I'm cynical. And I think that <laughs> I'm cynical in the sense that I think the only way to move people to take some kind of action is the first thing you have to do is show them how it benefits them as individuals. Even if they happen to be altruistic people, you know, if you told them if the, if the most selfless thing about them is, you know, it's going to benefit your community and your neighbors, um, that makes them happy. So in that sense, it's, it's appealing to their self-interest. They want to be happy and they want to feel good about what they're doing. Uh, And on the other end of that spectrum, of course, it's someone who's just looking at the bottom line and saying, just show me the money. And um, so in that sense, I'm always trying to speak to the person who just wants to see the money also, because I, I feel like if you can't show the money with your argument, then, you know, it's, still, it's not going to be as effective as it could be if, if you could show it. Uh, and so in our case, it's not hard to show that, that investing in climate solutions is going to be better for your bottom line in the long run. Um, it's going to help all these other things down the line, like it's going to improve quality of life and give people better health and better food and all that uh, and improve national security. But if, you're, if your only issue is how much money is going to be in my pocket at the end of the day, well, you know, climate, the, dealing with the climate crisis is also going to help you either stop losing money uh, <laughs> sooner or start making money sooner or some combination of those two. So I, I'm cynical in that way that I, I, I'm under no illusions about human nature. You know, I plead guilty to it also. But I'm hopeful in the sense that we're, we're pretty amazing uh, as a species. You know, we're, we are pretty smart, at least compared to all the other species. And we've done some really cool things with our technology and our brains. Uh, and I, I'm really hopeful that if we just oriented our, our, our brains <laughs> towards, uh, towards common sense, at least what I argue is the common sense that we put, put in all of our stories, um, then we can do it. So I, I am hopeful because of the capacity of, of, uh, of human civilization. I mean, I, it's, it's pretty impressive when you step back and you look at what we've done. You know, I'm impressed by it. I'm awed by it. And I think we can keep doing it. You mentioned the early days kind of challenged with perhaps financial issues. What brought you to this work and what's your why? What keeps you going? So uh, my first job out of college was in public radio. I was a producer at a a public radio station in in Baltimore and uh, did audio documentaries, um, produced a daily show, really met a lot of people from different walks of life and different public affairs issues that they were all working on. So got pretty steeped into um, policy, Uh, didn't get a degree in policy ever. I thought maybe I would study that somewhere along the way, but I, I really enjoyed approaching public policy through journalism and through through media. Uh, then went to, to study documentary film and uh, wound up working at a number of different production companies on documentaries after that program. And 
then had my own video production company where I mostly did work in DC for nonprofits and academic institutions. So again, always around interesting organizations that were focused on, on, on really interesting issues of all kinds. Around 2010, I came across a document a project I was working on for one of my clients at the time. I had to become somewhat familiar with the Quadrennial Defense Review, which the military puts out every four years. It's a, a strategy uh, statement on where the military is and where it needs to, what it needs to do. It, so I guess it's sort of their version of the uh, State of the Union, but for but for the military. And in it, they uh, had the phrase threat multiplier. Climate change is a threat multiplier. And I thought, wow, that is it's a striking phrase. And it occurred to me then that of all the environmental filmmaking that I'd known of, I didn't know of any that, that was talking about climate in terms of national security. So I started to explore that issue some more. Finally got so interested in it, I didn't have a client who was going to hire me to make a video about it. So I started making my own independent film about it and just felt like it was a story that really needed to be told within that frame. So I wound up interviewing a lot of folks at uh, the Pentagon, um, in the defense space, a lot of uh, troops that came back from Afghanistan and Iraq and talked about how they were uh, spending too too much money and too many lives were were lost in terms of just getting fuel and protecting fuel when other missions were were not getting done. Uh, and so you had a lot of veterans uh, moving into the clean energy space because of the uh, because of that reality uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan because we hadn't thought about our, our energy equation, uh, as well as we could have. So at the same time that the military was beginning to talk about this as a threat multiplier, uh, there was a lot of activity on renewable energy in the military. So uh, that film, The Burden, covered a lot of what uh, the military was, military was doing to make that transition. And so uh, that was really the first thing that got me down this road. And then once that film was done, uh, I was able to move into making other films uh, rather than go back to uh, works for hire, uh, which we'll do uh, every now and then. But but what American Resilience Project does is uh, just creating our own independent films, trying to have action around the policies that uh, those films are designed to influence. Well, you shared what got you here. Let's move into the future. It's 2030. Let's say your favorite publication, Fast Company, Fortune, Forbes, any publication was going to write a headline about the American Resilience Project. What would you like that headline to read? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, let's see. I think a great headline would be, uh, well, I mean, if it has to be about American Resilience Project by name, that's one thing. I mean, I I like the fact that we we can just present the truth and not have to worry about who the author uh, or presenter of the truth is. You know, I, I think a lot about the trusted, just a little side note here. I mean, I think that, that people want to get information from a trusted messenger first and foremost. You know, it doesn't, you know, I, I, I sometimes will knock Al Gore every now and then in terms of climate communication, because even though Inconvenient Truth was a, was a great wake-up call and, and, a, and a really important film, um, there are people that never were going to listen to Al Gore anyway, and you know there was no way they were going to spend their time with him on film. Uh, so they didn't trust him as a messenger. They didn't want to hear anything from him. Um, so they didn't watch Inconvenient Truth. You know, so far to date, American Resilience Project is not associated with uh, you know political brand, and that's good. We're we're trying to just 
stay outside of that lexicon <laughs> if we can. Um, again, I make no bones about my own personal political views, and you could probably extrapolate from some of the arguments that we're making that uh, you know we're we've got a soft spot for progressive values, but you know we're not we're 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 a non-political organization. We're nonpartisan, um, and we think that there is truth that transcends whatever those political or progressive or conservative values are. You know, we call them those values uh, out of convenience, but they don't have to always be, right? Clean clean air, food security don't have to be called progressive or conservative. And if, if you try to do that, you know, you're, you're distorting the, the, uh, the meaning. Um, so back to your question is, what, what do I think the headline would say? I think the best headline that didn't mention us would be something like right-wing news media suffer drastic loss of viewership, you know, like, <laughs> and, and, and sure, then the, maybe the subheadline would be nonprofit is credited with uh, knocking down the door of misinformation and, and defending democracy against toxic weaponized lies. <laughs> so um, that's, uh, that's what we want to do. We're, we're, we're going for what we really feel is objective truth. And, uh, you know, it, we make what we consider to be airtight arguments. Like I always thought in my mind, if if uh, you know, in, in one of these narcissistic moments, if Tucker Carlson ever actually wanted to have me on a show, you know, he'd obviously have me on to make me look, try to make me look stupid and liberal and and girly and all that stuff that he spews. Um, but all I really would have to come back to keep saying is like, Tucker, are you against saving the lives of our troops and saving our taxpayers' money? So you know, why are you against the military? Uh, moving into renewable energy. Just that's it. There's an objective truth there that uh, you, you can't put a, a chink in that armor. So um, that's, that's that, you know, I guess the essence of that story is, is what we will measure as our success someday. And uh, what will hopefully a 2030 headline will say about American Resilience Project is that we, we kept our heads down and, and focused on keeping our eye on the prize here, uh, which is you know, not taking your eye off the ball when it comes to messaging. You can pick a message, you stick with it, and um, you know it's the only way, especially in this very disjointed media ecosystem, that your message is ever going to have success. It's just going to take some time, and you can't get drawn into side debates. And you've got to chart the the playing field and and not get pulled off it. Well, let me give you a second suggestion for our headline. How about American Resilience Project? Men's partisan fault lines. Yeah, or or dissolves them, uh, you know, or, or, re, or redraws them. That's that's the realistic one. You're never going to dissolve them. I mean, I'm under no illusions that it's going to be kumbaya, right? Um, it's it's redraws and expands them and gives maybe a, a more three dimensional perspective to what those lines look like, as opposed to uh, a two dimensional spectrum that goes from left to right. Well, Roger, let me move into my last question, and this could be professional or personal, but if you could share some advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, and it could be, you know, perhaps how to get involved or even to, you know, which movies they could start with, the farm bill, any one of those, what would it be? Well, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, please do get in touch with us. I mean, we're trying to build as much of a community around this uh, narrative building effort. I mean, it is, has to do with, at the end of the day, and this is one thing that we're realizing as an organization. I mean, when we first started, it was, what film are we going to do next? Uh, what's the policy objective for that film? Now it's those questions, but it's also, what can we do to counteract 
um, all of the disinformation and noise that's out there, either counteract disinformation uh, and rise above noise. Um, and so we need as many people as we can understanding what the narrative is here. Now I said a moment ago about the, the playing fields. That's the narrative. Um, people need to understand that, you know, and, th and this takes many different forms. I mean, it can take like, well, we have resources on our website that are sample testimony templates or scripts for people who want to testify at their public service commission hearing to talk about energy rates or renewable energy or uh, rooftop solar in their community. I mean, really wonky stuff. Um, we're trying to get folks involved in increased civic engagement. It's, that's a really important part of this. Um, get people involved in civic action. Um, and so you can go to our website and learn about how to do that. We're still developing some of these resources. Uh, so of course, as a nonprofit, we're always looking for funds to help us develop them. Um, but if you just go to amresproject.org, you can see all of our films. Uh, films are for free uh, for personal use. We are still licensing them for academic and corporate use and for broadcast and other, other uh, distribution platforms. Um, but if you just want to watch it, just go to the website. You can watch them for free. And then think about who do you know in your life? Who do you know that needs to hear this message or change their understanding of the issue? And it could just be something simple like your uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, uh, where you, instead of avoiding a conversation about politics, you actually know how to have the right conversation about politics. Um, where you're you're going to redraw, you're going to help redraw those those partisan fault lines in your own daily life. I mean, that's what it's going to take. It's not going to be solved by just someone like me making a movie. Um, the movie is just a starting point. It it opens the door to that conversation. But but people need to get out there and get it get out of their comfort zone um, and learn how to be better communicators themselves. Right, like not hide anonymously on social media, throwing flames, no matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican or whatever. Um, like that's not a way to communicate and we shouldn't be communicating that way. So, so we want to, I guess, help reeducate society to, that's gotten away from its ability to have constructive conversation and communication throughout. So that's, that's really what, and maybe that's a better answer for your question about the headline in 2030. But I mean, that's, we want to, we want to give humanity uh, an ability to uh, resolve conflict more effectively through communication. Well, Roger, I really appreciate your time today. I will put a link to your website in the show notes. And I look forward to watching Farm Free or Die myself. Great. Thanks, Raj. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Roger. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.